So welcome everyone to the IOPPN Festival podcast. This is Andre from The Mental Elf and I'm here with Professor Terry Moffat. And Terry is um, a professor working or affiliated with King's College London, specifically the Social Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Centre. Um, and she's giving a talk at the festival, which is happening in a couple of weeks' time on the 27th of April. Uh, and the title, Terry, of your keynote is Surprises from Charting Four Decades of Mental Disorder from Childhood to Midlife. A uh, very warm welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And thank you, Mental Elf, for covering this. It's very exciting. Pleasure. Pleasure. So I was really struck by a quote from Jonathan Schaefer that you have in your slides where you say, if you stay mentally well your entire life, you're not normal. Um, what does your work on the Dunedin cohort show us about the prevalence of mental disorders in children and young people and adults? Well, let's just start by explaining how we collected the data, because I think that helps people understand why they might be persuasive on this point. It sounds shocking to say that almost everyone experiences some mental disorder at some point during their life, um, but here's how we found that out. We followed 1,000 people, all the babies born in one city in New Zealand uh, in 1972, until they were 45 years old. And we've uh, brought them into the clinic and done um, extensive mental health interviews um, every few years as they've been growing up. We've done nine different diagnostic interviews, and we were able to uh, count up by the time they were 45 how many of those 1,000 people had still not ever met the diagnostic criteria for any mental disorder. And it's only about 15%. So uh, about 85% of people in the general population um, have had a mental disorder at, at at least some time. Now, people ask, say, oh, is this just because they're New Zealanders? Maybe everyone in New Zealand has got you know, some kind of mental health problem. Uh, and what we do to rule that out is we look also at Denmark, uh, where one third of Danish citizens are registered as having received treatment for a mental health condition in the past 10 years. Uh, and we know that most people who have a mental disorder don't go into a hospital for treatment. So that's an undercount in Denmark. Um, and then we look at other longitudinal studies uh, that have also followed people forward through time and repeatedly interviewed them about their mental health. Uh, there are several of these studies in the United States, uh, and there's a very important one in Switzerland, and they also find that about uh, three quarters of their participants have a mental disorder at some time over the 20-year course of their longitudinal studies. So this looks like a solid fact. Um, the Dunedin study doesn't seem to be unusual in this regard. Uh, and I think it's something that we can all uh, take to heart when we're thinking about stigma against mental health. If we haven't had our own bout of mental disorder yet, it's probably coming to us. So I guess many people respond to this kind of evidence by saying what we're doing here is medicalizing normal human experiences and calling it mental illness when actually it's just normal human experience. 
And this plays into the hands of the mental health industry, who obviously want to maximise the number of people that we diagnose and treat. How do you respond to that kind of response to these really high figures? Yes, I'm really I'm I'm well aware of that line of thinking, um, and I think it's uh, has put some important breaks on uh, how we think about mental health uh, over the years. But in this particular case, in the Dunedin study, um, each person who received a diagnosis received it not from the mental health system or the healthcare system in New Zealand. They received it from our research staff. So these were the people came in and they told us about the problems that they were currently experiencing and struggling with. Uh, We also made certain that those problems met the diagnostic criteria. We also made certain that they were causing life impairment. So they were interfering with the study participants' uh, ability to work or take care of their families. And we contacted informants who they said knew them well and got corroborative evidence from people in the family or friends or partners. So I'm fairly confident that these are mental disorders that people did experience and they were impairing um, whether they got treatment or not. And many of them did not, of course, get treatment. So let's dig into the figures a little bit. Tell us when people who experience mental illness first become ill and tell us what we know about the relationship between early onset and difficulties in later life. Yes, because we were so fortunate to be able to um, have the privilege of tracking these 1,000 people from birth to midlife, uh, and this is a very special study, um, we were uh, able to ask at what age did most people have their first episode of mental illness or their first really serious impairing psychological problem. And for almost all of them, uh, it was during adolescence, say before age 18. Um, Fewer people had their first onset in their 20s and 30s, and almost no one by the time they were in their 40s. The people who had their first onset younger in life tended to also then go on to have more different kinds of mental health problems over their life course, uh, and their uh, mental health problems tended to uh, last more years of their life. So long-lasting and um, a greater variety of problems if the start was during the adolescent age. And I'm also interested in the kind of the paths in terms of different types of diagnosis. That was really surprising to me, the data that you have. So tell us about the types of diagnosis people have over the decades of their lives um, and the pattern to those illnesses or ranges of illnesses? I think this is really important. Um, Let me just uh, think of a good way to describe how we started asking this question about whether people had different types of mental disorders or psychological problems over their uh, life course. So, you know, I noticed that Most of the time when researchers are doing research on mental health problems, we contact people at one point in time, and that's the time when they enroll in our research study. And we work really hard to make a diagnosis uh, to make sure we've got the right diagnosis at that time. 
And likewise, if we are clinicians who are treating people who have mental health problems, when we first meet them and they come into our clinics or into our therapy offices, we work really hard to make the right diagnosis. And the reason we do that is because we think that the diagnosis tells us what sort of treatment uh, they ought to get. And it probably tells us something about what caused their mental health problems. Um, and it might tell us something about their prognosis, how they're going to do in the future. So to mental health professionals like me, making the right diagnosis has, at the time we meet someone has been super important. However, that's just one slice of a person's life. We tend to say, okay, this is a person uh, who is depressed. This is a person who has schizophrenia. This is a, an ADHD person. This is an autism person. This is an OCD person. So we assign that label. But what if the next time we saw them a few years later, they had switched diagnoses? That would be surprising to us. Uh, and rather unconventional. So we just looked in our data set that we had accrued over following these um, uh, New Zealanders for so many years and asked how many people kept the same diagnosis that they got initially. And it was fewer than um, uh, one in a hundred. So the typical situation is someone uh, has first time in their life, they have say um, ADHD. And then a few years later, they develop cannabis dependence. And then a few years later, they have panic attacks. And then a few years later, they feel they depressed and develop depression. And then a few years later, they develop an alcohol dependency. And if you keep following people along over the decades and seeing them again and again and again, what you will learn is that nobody keeps the same diagnosis. And that's really important then for revising in the minds of mental health professionals how we see people. We need to see them as a person, not as a diagnosis. It makes the diagnosis, frankly, not so important. We need to really just work with individuals about you know, how their lives are going and how to help them um, uh, deal with the problems that they're having. So I think this research suggests that the diagnosis at any one point in time can sort of take a back seat to really looking more at, at a person and how their life has, has been unfolding. And again, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I guess the the way a lot of people would respond to that is is by saying, well, actually, that just shows how, how meaningless mental health diagnosis is. Let's just dump it and focus on the things that are really important, as you say, in people's lives, you know, the fact that people are living in poverty, discriminated against, suffering from early life trauma. How can you look at that evidence that you have about the way that illnesses and diagnosis change? You know, there was no pattern there at all for the 70 people that you followed up. 70 different people, 70 different stories, no pattern. How can you look at that and then still think that retaining diagnosis and treatment protocols that follow on from it is still a meaningful approach. Yes, and those 70 people that you refer to were actually out of the 1,000. Those 70 were the ones who had been treated as an inpatient, so their mental health problems had been uh, severe enough that they uh, spent time inside hospital. 
um, for them. But still, over the years, they had many different diagnoses at different times in their lives. So what do I think about, should we just throw out all the, the diagnoses you know, as meaningless? If I were by temperament inclined to be an iconoclast, I would completely agree with that. I do think that's what the data show. I don't think we learn a lot from the diagnoses. I think they're a little bit um, dangerous because they lead us professionals, me included, to see a person as their diagnosis instead of to really delve deeply and try to understand them as an individual. Um, and I'm not sure that the diagnoses are giving us a lot of additional information. We found in our study that if we knew three things about a person, uh, we could get much more information to help them uh, than we got from a diagnosis. And those three things were, how young were you the first time this happened? How many different kinds of mental health problems do you think you've had over time? And how many years of your life uh, have involved a mental health problem? So those three things that we could learn by talking with people were so much more important than giving them a diagnosis. That said, I do understand that when a person comes in for treatment, they would like help with the diagnosis, the, the problem that they have today. And so we can't really avoid making a diagnosis, you know, a snapshot diagnosis, because that does guide what we decide to do today. But I think we ought to be doing so much more. If we knew that the young person who came to our office today with depression or OCD or ADHD would be likely to have two or three other different problems in the future years, we would do more, I think, to try to inoculate them against those future problems. I want us mental health professionals not just to stop at uh, addressing the current sy symptom that's bothering someone today, but work with people to train them and give them real skills that they can use to ward off other future mental health problems that might be coming to them 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So if there are things that we can do responsibly to help people prepare uh, for a mentally healthy future, that would be the most important thing we could do in psychotherapy. You, you started to talk a bit about implications there of this research for you know, clinicians, for mental health professionals. And I wondered if you could summarize what you think the implications are of this work for both clinicians, but also scientists who are trying to develop new interventions. What do you think the, the key take-home messages are for people? I think the key take-home message that I get from following these 1,000 people uh, for several decades is that working hard to make a diagnosis with uh, a, a person who comes to us clinicians at any one point in time is not the point. Uh, the diagnosis can be helpful at trying to help us decide uh, what kind of short-term treatment we want to do to just help suppress the symptoms that the person has today. But what we really need to do is devote much more time and much more energy to preparing people for a healthy mental health future. 
So any kind of skills that we can train uh, our patients uh, or our clients to use uh, to ward off future um, different kinds of mental health problems that might be coming their way 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now will be a wonderful investment. I think that clinicians owe it to their patients to help them um, prepare for a mentally healthy future and how to sustain their mental health, how to maintain it uh, into the future, not just treat what's wrong today. So that's the implication for clinicians. For researchers, you know, a lot, researchers spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is the cause of depression or what is the cause of schizophrenia or what is the cause of ADHD. Uh, each different disorder was thought to have its own different cause. But you can see that if a person, the same person has all those disorders, there's probably some cause that applies to all of them. And in fact, that's what we're seeing in genetics research, in neuroscience research, um, even in research on, uh, on child development uh, and deprivation and maltreatment. All of those things are pointing to causes that apply to all the different disorders likewise. Uh, so researchers can really stop struggling to find the specific cause and really start working on how to treat a more broad view of where mental uh, illness comes from. I think that will be a different way of doing the science and it should uh, generate uh, progressive treatments much faster. And that vision for mental health science does kind of require a much more cross-disciplinary approach doesn't it than we're used to um i noticed when you were looking talking about your measurement tools on on your website you were talking about you know different ways of measuring psychology and genomics and neuroimaging and geocoding i'm really struck by the fact that you've done a lot of that cross-disciplinary legwork what are the challenges do you think in science in mental health science becoming a broader church and in those different disciplines working more together well, we've got a bad habit. Uh, we mental health professionals are addicted to specific diagnoses. So uh, people in their training, they specialize as a, a person who treats depression or a person who treats panic attacks or a person who treats even postpartum depression or a person who treats only adolescent psychosis or a person who treats only cannabis dependence. Um, so we're trained to specialize our journals that publish our scientific articles are specialist journals. So we have a journal of addictions and a journal of anxiety and depression and a journal of um, ADHD. So where we publish our work, we have to specialize to get the, the papers published, uh, lest we perish at our jobs in universities. Um, and we run clinics that are specialist clinics. So we have an ADHD clinic or an OCD clinic. Um, so you can see that the whole mental health care and science system is set up to specialize narrowly around specific diagnoses and to do research narrowly in specific silos. Uh, I hope that the new research findings that are coming out of all of these multi-decade studies 
that show that people move from disorder to disorder to disorder during their life will break down some of those walls. And um, I think we'll make a lot more progress uh, if we leave the diagnoses pretty much behind. So what implications do you think that has for funders of research? Do you think enough thought is going into these kind of cross-disciplinary relationships being developed? Because it, it, it does, breaking down those silos that you talk about, those professional publication silos, that's a big job. It is a big job. I haven't noticed that uh, funders have announced any specific initiatives to try to uh, support uh, cross-diagnosis mental health research and development of cross-diagnosis treatments. Uh, However, these findings are pretty new and funders are like battleships. It takes a while to turn them around. Now, we do have a movement in psychiatry that's called the transdiagnostic movement, and there are uh, very forward-looking um, individuals who have been developing uh, treatment protocols that go beyond just the current problem that a patient would have today to try to teach broader skills for maintaining good mental health years into the future. So that's definitely happening. That's a movement. We'd like to see it stronger. Uh, we'd like to see it move faster. We'd like to see it make a bigger difference. But I think it's going to get there. So finally, just give me a a 30-second soundbite, which is telling people why they should come along to your keynote talk at the IPPN Festival on the 27th of April. I'd like listeners to this podcast to come along so that you can see the work for yourselves and see how um, interviews over time with a thousand people generate a beautiful picture of uh, mental health unfolding over the life course. It's really fascinating. Uh, And I think it means that we have to do our treatments quite differently than the way we've done them in the past. 